Good morning. Thank you for braving the cold today and being here. So here's what we're going to do, okay? Um, Today we're just going to imagine that we are Christians in North Korea, and this is like a secret hideout, and we don't have heat in this place, you know, and I'm joking. Solidarity with the persecuted church in cold places around the world. Um, What's that? Hey, you know what? I usually am dying up here hot, so I'll probably be just fine. Um, Well, glad to see everyone. It really is a joy to to see you today and be with you. And um, so we're three weeks into 2016. Here's what just want to give you just an idea of where we're going in the next months ahead. Uh, In a few weeks, we're going to be starting. a teaching series through the book of James, which I am super, super thrilled about. Um, So that's going to probably take us a few months to get through the book of James. Really amazing book. It's going to challenge us deeply, and I trust God is going to use it in tremendous ways, both personally and corporately, to bring transformation to our lives. Um, So the last few weeks, we've spent the last couple weeks, and this week and next week, we're just doing some topical things in a sense, to set the tone for 2016. Uh, just by God's grace, I trust that God is, is doing something in us this year, to, um, or at the beginning of this year, to look out into the horizon of 2016 and give us a vision of what He wants to do in our lives. So a couple weeks ago, I just challenged us to be people who are making good resolves. God loves them, and He works in them and through them. Last week, Reed's message was on staying in God's house, staying near to the Lord. Better is one day in God's presence than a thousand days elsewhere in the best of places. And here's what I want to do today from this passage in 1 Corinthians 1. I want to challenge us that 2016, or not really challenge us, my prayer, my desire is that 2016 would be a year in which you and I have a major collision with the grace of God. We have a major, I mean, just collide, and you and I cave, okay? We fall, we bow, we receive. It just comes to us like a mighty rushing river or whatever metaphor you want to put in there. It just comes to us with great power. Grace that is undomesticated, that's durable, that's free, that's fully equipped, okay? Grace is not um, a peripheral thing for Christians in the Christian faith. It's not like the side thing, like icing on the cake. It is the main thing. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Am I echoing a little bit? Okay, doesn't bother me if it doesn't bother you. He says, I am what I am by the grace of God, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul says, whatever I am, I am that by God's grace. So this is not a peripheral thing. This is a central thing to have a collision experience with God's grace here this year. So, this passage shows us shows three ways in which God's grace comes down from heaven. Three ways in which God's grace comes down. This undomesticated, durable, 
free and fully equipped grace. And I hope that as we go through this, you will see and have a, have a change in your thinking of how God views you as a Christian. So here's the three ways grace comes down. If you consider yourself a Christian, if you'd say, I trust in Jesus, I've, I've repented of my sins, I put my faith in Christ, here's how grace comes down from this passage. One, God has chosen you. Two, God has relocated you in Christ. And three, Christ has become everything you need. All of this is by grace. God has chosen you. God has relocated you in Christ. And Jesus Christ has become everything that you need for life, for this life and eternal life. Let's just plug through these. First, God has chosen you. It's interesting, right off the bat, we see that God chooses the least likely people. When we, re- when we read through this, if you and I were a captain of a football team, okay, like when I, when I was little, we'd pick teams, all right? God chooses the people that no one would choose. <clears throat> That's what he does. Verses 26 to 28, it says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and what is despised. And even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So what is God, who does God choose? God cho- chooses nobodies. Foolish people according, according to the world. Weak people according to the world. St. Augustine, who died about 1,600 years ago, so a long time ago, he said this interesting statement. He said, Christians are not chosen because they believe, but they are chosen in order that they may believe. So prior to you believing in Christ, you did that, right? You believed in him. You might even remember the day. But prior to you believing in Christ, God had chosen you. It's an amazing thing. Of course, Jesus says in John 15, verse 16, he says, you did not choose me. He's speaking to his disciples. He said, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us when this choosing takes place. Now listen to this. This is amazing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then, if, you read, if you've ever read Ephesians 1, then he just begins to unload all of these spiritual blessings. And what's the first one he says? Even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, just a phrase meaning long time ago, before the world was made, Millions of years ago, I don't know if you'd say years back in eternity past, but sometime in eternity past, God chose to set his affection upon us. This is amazing. 
This is absolutely stunning. You know, when um, every time Alyssa and I were pregnant, Alyssa's pregnant, sorry. <laughs> we found out she was pregnant. I'm sure it's the same way in your family. As soon as you know there's a baby on the way, there is deep affection for that child. God, before the foundation of the world, millions of years ago, knew you and chose you and set his love and affection upon you in Christ. This choosing is totally unconditional. You and I don't have to meet any conditions. In fact, if we go back to our text, remember, who does he choose? I mean, Paul makes that abundantly clear. God chooses the foolish, the weak, the low, the despised. In fact, maybe the only qualification is you just have to be a loser. I'm kind of joking, okay? I'm joking. There's, we don't meet any conditions, right? Romans chapter 9 says that God chooses not according to the man who wills, or the man who runs, the man who has great willpower, or the man who works really hard or tries really hard, but according to his own mercy. This is deep and rich and undomesticated and free and glorious grace. Paul makes clear that God chooses despite the Corinthians' foolishness, despite their weakness, despite their lowliness, despite their despicableness, and despite their nothingness, he chose them. So Christians, God's grace has come down in being, being chosen by God before the foundation of the world, millions of years before the world ever was or you ever were, Freely by his grace, unconditionally, even in spite of our sins, limitations, and baggage. If you are a Christian, if you, are, if you belong to Jesus, I mean, you truly do. I'm not saying something happened a long time ago and that you hardly think about, but you really belong to Christ. It's because God has chosen you freely by his grace. This is undomesticated, durable, free, and fully equipped grace. But it, it goes further than that here. Not only are you chosen by God, but our text tells us that God has relocated you in Christ. Verse 30, the first part says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. The New American Standard Bible says, By his doing. You're in Christ. Or the NIV says, it is because of him that you are in Christ. I think they're all communicating the exact same thing. You are in Christ because of something God has done. So what does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Well, everyone born into the world, every single person is born in Adam and inherits from Adam, which means they inherit sin and judgment and death. And therefore, something needs to happen in order to take us out of Adam and place us into Jesus Christ so that we can receive all that is in Christ, namely redemption and forgiveness and eternal life. 
Well, let me ask you a question. Do you find yourself today in Christ by faith? Again, I'm asking, do you trust in Jesus? If you say yes, then you are in Christ by faith. The Bible says you are a branch in the vine. You are a stone in the building. You are a member of Christ who is the head. But you didn't do that of yourself, right? A branch doesn't attach itself to a tree or a vine. A stone doesn't place itself in a building. And a limb from a body doesn't attach itself to the body. No, God did that. You didn't place yourself in Christ. God himself came and did that. And you might say, but I believe in Jesus. And I would say, yes, you do. Praise God. You might say, I do. I remember the time I believed in Jesus. And I would say, amen. Praise his name. But do you know that even your faith, even your faith that you exercised when you trusted in Christ, even that faith was a gift. Even your faith was a gift from a gracious God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. And when he says, and this is not of yourselves, he's talking about being saved by grace through faith. You did believe in Jesus, if you have believed in Jesus, but even your believing, even your faith that you exercised and placed in Jesus Christ was a gift from God. So I think this is how it works. This is how this works, being placed in Christ. At a time when you were dead in your sins, right? Ephesians 2 says, we were at one time, we're dead in our sins. I think that's such a vivid picture. Imagine lying in a coffin and you just are lying in your sins, dead, like a dead corpse. When you're dead in your sins, it says God made you alive together with Christ. God raised you from the dead, right? I don't know if you remember a time. It's hard for me to remember because I grew up in the church. Um, but, but many here, I'm sure, do remember a time when you utterly rejected Jesus Christ. You didn't trust in him. You didn't want to worship him. You didn't, if there was a heaven, you didn't want to be there. You did not trust Christ at all. Ephesians 2 says that's, being, that's like being dead in your sins. Well, what happened to bring you from there to being someone who is alive to God, who begins to see in the gospel that Jesus is glorious and beautiful and God is gracious and I'm sinful and I need him? That's God raising someone from the dead. Whoever is in Christ, if you're in Christ... You're a new creation. God has raised you from the dead. Oh my gosh. I mean, I see so many resurrected people here and everyone's silent. Okay. God, if you believe in Christ, if you're in Christ, God has raised you from the dead. Right? Because we're a new creation in Christ. 
we once were dead in our sins. God took us, right? This dead corpse. Don't think of like you're flapping in the sea and, and someone throws a life, you know, little life ring to you or whatever, and you grab onto it and you're saved. Think of being a dead corpse at the bottom of the sea, lifeless. And God came and rescued you and breathed life into you, brought you to life, and placed you in Christ by his grace. Every true Christian has, has experienced being raised from the dead. And I'm not saying, uh, I know there's some dramatic conversion experiences and others are not nearly as dramatic. But the truth is, the biblical truth is, every Christian, every true born-again Christian has experienced being raised from the dead. And this is anything but ordinary. This is not ordinary grace. This is not domesticated grace. This is free, durable, undomesticated, fully equipped grace. But our text even takes us further than this. Not only are Christians chosen chosen by God, not only are they relocated in Christ by God, but our passage says that Jesus Christ has become everything you need. Everything you need. Not everything your, your flesh wants. Everything you need. Christ is everything you need. Paul says in Colossians, I think chapter uh, 3 at the beginning, he says this statement, Christ, who is our life. He is everything we need. The end of verse 30, actually, let me just read the entire verse. Verse 30 says, and because of God, because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Christ has become wisdom from God, righteousness from God, sanctification and redemption for the Christian. Let's just consider these just briefly for a few minutes. We could, you could do a message, message on each one of these, but just very briefly. Wisdom from God. The world considers the gospel utterly foolish. Even many people that sit in churches week after week, they consider the gospel utterly foolish that God came down from heaven, right? And, uh, and lived a perfect life among us and died on a pathetic tree, cross, And rose again, and just by raw, simple faith in him, we can be saved forever. The world considers that foolish. And yet, the New Testament says, this is God's wisdom. Earlier in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, um, it says this. But we preach, Paul says this, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks from all nations, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. It's foolishness to those who want seek wisdom. It's a stumbling block to those who seek power. But to those who are called, both Jews and non-Jews, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is Wisdom unto us. I love what it says later on chapter 3. I think it's verse 18. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. 
Let no one deceive himself. Listen to these words. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. It's like if you think you're wise, you need to actually become foolish so that you can receive the wisdom of God, which is Christ crucified. Christ has become wisdom from God. He is also righteousness. Okay, this speaks of our perfect standing with God through faith in Christ, right? Jesus, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, became sin for us. Jesus knew no sin. You and I are full of sin. Jesus knew no sin and he became sin for us so that in Christ, remember we're in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah chapter 61, I believe, speaks of being clothed in robes of righteousness. This is utterly amazing because you and I, we know ourselves. Even on our best days, we just, you know, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I mean, does anyone do that for even a day? Right? We know ourselves. We know that we fall short. And yet in Christ, because of his perfect righteousness, his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection, and us being in him, it's like his perfect obedience is put on us like a robe. I mean, my goodness, that is amazing. It's not just that God gives us, like he just kind of, he gives us an installment of righteousness. But it says Christ has become righteousness for us and to us. Furthermore, he is our sanctification. Jesus Christ is our sanctification. Sanctification here, I think, means being set apart for God, becoming more and more like Christ as we are set apart for him. And because we are in Christ, he is the basis of our sanctification I mean, so much so that first, first John 3 says that when Jesus Christ appears, when he comes again and we see him, we're going to be changed like this in a moment. We're going to be like him because we will see him as he is. And whoever hopes in him and hopes in this purifies himself, right? Sanct- is sanctified even as Christ is pure. And Jesus Christ is our redemption. Redemption simply means deliverance, liberation. And that has come to us. But I think Paul has in mind here a future orientation to our redemption. Because we know that deliverance hasn't fully come. Liberation hasn't fully come yet. I think Paul speaking of a future redemption. When Christ returns. And we are redeemed. Paul says in Romans 8. That in this present age. You just check this is true experientially for you. I know it is for me. And I, and I, think, I think it is for, for. I think it is. For all of us. We groan inwardly. It says the whole creation groans. And we groan inwardly as Creatures made in God's image. We're redeemed, but we're waiting for redemption. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption of sons. And then he says, the redemption of our bodies. 
For in this hope you were saved. In this hope you were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Paul's saying, this thing we, this thing we groan for is the redemption of our bodies, is the fullness of salvation in Christ. When Jesus returns and it says, all those who are dead in Christ, those who have died believing in Jesus, will be raised imperishable. With imperishable bodies. I'm only 37. I mean, it feels kind of old to me. I mean, but I know it's not that old. But I mean, listen, I feel that my body is very perishable. You're 45, you're 50, you're 60, 65 in here. You feel that. You know that. The redemption of our bodies. Everything we need to be saved and to remain saved and to experience the fullness of salvation, Jesus Christ has become to us. He is our wisdom. He is our righteousness. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. Now, all these things chosen by God, being placed by God in Christ, and Jesus becoming all these things for us. I don't know if you noticed, but we are kind of, at least so far, we're pretty passive in this whole deal. Right? God is doing these things. He chooses. He takes us. Dead people makes them alive in Christ. He, through Christ, become all these things to us. Why does God save in this way? Why does God do this? Our text makes it explicitly clear. There are two places that the words so that are used in our passage. Verse 29 says this, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Verse 31 says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why does God save like this? Well, we sang it earlier, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Why does God do this? So that we would not boast in ourselves or anything that we bring to the table, but we would boast in God. We are boasters by nature. You know that? I am. Even in secret ways. Even in ways where I try to sound humble. We are boasters by nature. God says he saves in such a way so that no human being may come before God in his presence and boast in himself. I think of the, the, public, uh, the, the story that Jesus tells of the two men that come to the temple to worship. And the one is the, tax, uh, the, one is the Pharisee and the other is the tax collector. And the Pharisee comes before God and he says, God, I thank you that I tithe and I fast and I do these things, these good things, good things. And he says, I'm not like other people, extortioners and you know, losers and this guy over here. And, um, and the, pub, the, the, the tax collectors, you know, 
The Pharisee came up front. The tax collector is kind of in the back. And the tax collector, he's just with his face down, beating his breast and just saying, Lord, have mercy on me. God saves in this way so that we wouldn't boast in ourselves at all, but so that we would boast in him, that we would be boasters. I mean, listen, one thing I was going to say at the beginning was, I want 2016 to be a year of big boasting. And I do. In God and in his grace. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved. I read this earlier. Through faith, and this is not of, our, of ourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 4, What do you have? What do you have that you haven't received? Don't just think of like my house, my car, you know, job, things like that. I mean, certainly those things too. In the context, I think he's just saying, what, what spiritual blessing do you have that wasn't a gift? And even if, you would, even if you would say, God is just stirring up a great desire for me to go after him. And I'm going after him. Even that is something that God has given you. What do you have that you haven't received? And if you received it, he says, why do you boast as though you haven't received it? God saves in such a gracious way, free grace, durable grace, undomesticated grace, wild and crazy grace, so that we wouldn't boast in ourselves, but we boast in him. And this is good news for us. This is for our joy. God gets the glory and we get the joy. You might say, how is this good news? It just sounds like, it just sounds like it's all about God. Well, yeah, it is. And this is good news for us. You were made for more than looking in a mirror and liking what you see. You were made for more than that. To look in the mirror and say, I like what I see. I am pleased with what I see. What's that old um, Saturday, night, Saturday, night, Saturday Night Live skit? Stuart Smalley, you guys remember that guy? You're great, you're wonderful, and doggone it, people like you. <laughs> you guys remember that? Some of you might. You probably don't. Okay. <laughs> uh, we were made for more than that. We were made for more than glorying in ourselves. We were made to glory in God. That's what it means to boast. It means to glory in Him. It means to revel in Him. It means to be thrilled with Him. You, a finite person, were made to glory in the infinite God who made you. You, a finite person, were made to drink from the infinite river of God's eternal delights and walk away satisfied and coming back for more day after day after day, without price and without cost. Let me give you three reasons in closing this morning why this is exceedingly good news for you and I. First, 
We boast in what we want to boast in. Do you know that? For it to really be boasting, it cannot be coerced. It can't be forced. It isn't hard for us to boast in what we love and what we value. Think about when you boast in your child, right? It just, it just comes naturally. Think about when you boast in your spouse or a great restaurant or a great meal or a great dessert. Okay, I love dessert. Or an amazing product that you're using that others can benefit from. Or a music band or a song or something like that. We boast in what we enjoy. We do. We always do. God is telling us to boast. God is telling us boast in what is infinitely valuable, what is infinitely worthy, what is infinitely worth boasting in, namely God himself. He wants us to boast, but not mainly in small, transient, perhaps even self-centered things. But he wants us to boast in what is supremely satisfying and supremely valuable, namely God himself. Now, some here might say, listen, I don't, I don't want to boast in God. I don't enjoy God. Well, ask God to change your heart. You can do that, right? Ask God to change what you want. That's what this whole message is about. I mean, that that God comes down graciously and freely and does for us what we don't deserve. And he changes our desires, remember? And he raises a dead person to life. If you remember a time when you hated Jesus or maybe you didn't hate him, that's a strong word. Maybe you didn't feel like you hated him, but you didn't want to be near him. Well, he changed your desires. So if you're here today and you're like, I don't want to do what you're saying, boast in God. I'm praying for you, and I'd I'd urge you to pray that God would change your heart. He commands you to boast in him. Ask him to change your desire so that you will. Ask him to open up the eyes of your heart that you would see him as Worthy of being boasted in, of being praised. Uh, St. Augustine, I quoted him earlier um, from 1600 years ago, around when he lived. He said something one time, actually it was a prayer that he prayed, very controversial, kind of got in trouble by saying it. Some people didn't like it, but I think it's beautiful and I think it's something you and I ought to pray for today. He says, Command what you will, O Lord, and grant what you command. Command us to boast in you, Lord, and then just do everything you need to in my heart so that I would do it. Right? We boast in what we want to boast in. God commands us to boast in him. So let's boast in him. Number two, here's another reason why this is good news. What is it that leads to this boasting? 
What is it that leads to this boasting? It is a salvation that is so strong, so free, so durable. I mean, it's not going anywhere. It has staying power and it is fully equipped. It comes with everything we need, right? Go out, you go out and look for a new car. It's like, uh, I wouldn't be able to afford one, but like, I want that fully loaded one that comes with everything. Well, Jesus is a savior that is fully loaded. Comes with everything we need. What is it that leads to so much spiritual despondency and apathy? Well, there's probably different things we could put in here. I think one big thing is this. A lack of assurance that God's promises are true. That salvation really is as great as the Bible seems to say it is. Let me ask you a question. How do you know? How do you know that you're going to be a Christian tomorrow morning when you wake up? Or next week? Or a year from now? Or 10 years from now? Or on your deathbed? Hopefully when you're old and gray. How do you know you're going to be a Christian? Now, if you say, because I'm going to fight for faith. I'm just going to, I'm going to decide every day. I'm going to believe. We should do that. But if that's the foundation we're standing on, that's a, I would say, I would submit to you, it's a weak foundation. If, however, you say, because God chose me a million years ago or before the foundation of the world, in eternity past, God chose me and he put me in Christ. He raised me from the dead. And Jesus Christ, because of his perfect work on the cross, his resurrection, and he's coming again, and I know that he is, he has become wisdom from God for me, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is everything I need, and he will never let me go. That's a solid foundation to stand on. That's a rock-solid assurance that I, I suggest would pay joyful dividends for the rest of your life and into eternity. So our boasting is based on a God who has given such grace and saved so fully. The number three reason why this is very good news is that boasting isn't merely, when I say boasting, praising, glorying, rejoicing in, all these things, I think we could, synonyms for boasting, probably a little different, some of those words, but close. Boasting isn't merely the overflow of our joy, but boasting actually completes our joy. I was thinking about this yesterday. Have you ever been by yourself in the car or on a walk or something. You're all by yourself, just looking out the back window maybe, if you have a good view. And you see something beautiful in God's creation, like a sunset. 
Okay? Sometimes I look out and I see, I mean, like these colors in the sky that you could never find in a crayon box, right? Or in a paint palette. I mean, they're just stunning, dazzling colors. And you're by yourself, right? Has this ever happened to you? And you just have to say something. You just have to say, oh my goodness, that's amazing. You're by yourself. What are you doing? You're boasting. You can't be silent. You just got to say something. Or maybe God just really in a sweet and tender, powerful way just touched you and you're by yourself. And you just have to boast. Lord, you're good. You're amazing. What are you doing? You're boasting. And there's something about our enjoyment in that sunset or in God that isn't complete until we boast. We do this with our spouse. We do this with our children. We should do this with our spouse. I probably need to grow in this. Boasting in them, praising them. We do this with our kids. We do this again with an amazing product. We just have to say something to someone. We do this with music, a band or a song. Just this last week, I, I stumbled across this, this great song. I loved it. I mean, I just, it was amazing. I thought. <laughs> I shared it with some people. I don't know if they thought it was, but I thought it was. <clears throat> and you know what? I'm learning to kind of play the piano a little bit. I can kind of dink around a little bit on it. And I, I, I had to learn how to play the song. So I went home and figured kind of figure it out stumbling through it a little bit but so my kids heard me boasting in this song as i was singing it but you know what i was like i gotta share this so i sent it sent it to luke later in the week i was like you know what i think jason anderson would love this song so i sent it to jason you just that's just the way that we are so why not boast in god who has been so gracious to us to choose us before the foundation in spite of us, in spite of us, contrary to what we deserve and given us such a rich and deep salvation. Hebrews chapter 2 says, how shall we escape judgment if we neglect so great a salvation? My, my concern, I'm not concerned about us, but my concern about you and I is not that we're going to run headlong away from Christ and salvation. I'm more more concerned that we would just neglect it. Just neglect what God has given us in Christ. Such a rich and free salvation. So there's, there's only one command in our passage this week. It's kind of a compound command, I guess. It's this. Consider... God's grace toward you and boast in him. Consider God's grace towards you and brag about him and boast in him and praise him and glory in him. Let's pray. God, you're good. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word that is powerful living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. 
God, I pray that you would move and work in our hearts, uh, that we may find ourselves dull this morning, not maybe where we feel like we want to be. God, would you work in us these things that are pleasing to you, a revelation of your grace, of your gospel, and the outworking which comes in the form of boasting in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do Lord's Supper this morning, and I just want to uh, ask the men if they could grab the elements and uh, go ahead and come down and get in place. There's a phrase used in every account that speaks of the Lord's Supper, whether it's Matthew 26, I think, Mark 14, Luke 21, I believe, or 1 Corinthians 11. There's a phrase that's used in every single account, and it's this. Jesus, there's, there's lots of similarities to all of them, but there's one phrase I want us to think about this morning. Jesus gave thanks and broke bread, gave thanks and passed around the cup. He gave thanks as he broke bread and passed the cup. And I think this is exactly what the heart of the Christian should be doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is that we would celebrate with hearts of gratitude what God has done through Christ for us to rescue us and bring us to himself. Jesus gave thanks. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to give thanks, okay? Here's what I just want to encourage us to not do some things this morning, okay? I want to urge us not to turn this into a time where we turn in, our, uh, turn in on ourselves, okay? And get real introspective. I heard somebody one time say, Lord's Supper is not a time to search our hearts to see if there's any sin, because there is. If there's a love of sin, we want to forsake that. But none of us are perfect yet. We're righteous in Christ, but we're still in process. And so we want to turn outward to Christ. Here's another thing I don't want us to do, is to see this as an overly individual, privatized event. We are gathered here together before the Lord Jesus, together, like the disciples were, as they sat around the table with him, right? Their eyes were open. He was talking. They ate. They drank. They celebrated. That's what I, I just want this sense this morning, that we are here together before Christ, giving thanks, celebrating what he's done. And so just as the, the men are passing the elements, I want you just to consider how great a salvation we have in Christ. And we'll take the bread and the juice together and we'll give thanks and we'll celebrate what Christ has done. Okay, men, you can come forward. Hold your bread and juice and we'll take it together though, if you would. Thanks.
Lord, here we are today gathered in your presence, Lord Jesus, together with brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, your broken body, your poured out blood for our complete redemption and eternal joy and for your glory. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me with thanksgiving and joy. Let's take the bread. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With thanksgiving and joy, let's drink the cup. Lord, what else can we say? But thank you. You are worthy of glory and honor and praise now and forever. So God, grant us to be people who are stunned by your grace and turn our attention to you and in the power of your spirit and through the shed blood of Jesus, boast only in the Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.